90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, just fine. It's, it's sweltering hot here, but you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I we're in that time of year where it's heater, air conditioner, heater, uh, air conditioner. Exactly, just back and forth. Like, I try to not talk about the weather as much but you know i mean it's what we live by so (laughs) my client it's true it is topical oh (laughs) did you say tropical (laughs) topical though we are we are well into the greek alphabet now i know i can't remember like i don't know the last time that happened i'm guessing we have somebody we can ask though (laughs) Uh, we probably do which is a great segue into this week's guest So we're really excited to be talking to Steve Piltz about life in the National Weather Service and his career of testing all kinds of new ideas and severe storms prediction and uh, forecast workflows. Hey, Steve. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be with you all. So, Steve, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into meteorology? Well, I think it goes all the way back to when I was a child, and it has something to do with that I'm from Murfreesboro, Illinois, which those that know their tornado history know that the tri-state tornado 1925 uh, went across my hometown back then, uh, still holds lots of records for, for intensity and damage and deaths and those things. And so I, even as a, as a child, I grew up knowing that I could tell the adults were acting differently every time it was kind of a warmer, windier day in the springtime. And, and really, even before I was born in 1961, I believe it was 1957, an EF4, or I guess back then an F4, tornado struck the south part of Murfreesboro. And so it had some history back then. I could tell that weather was important to folks around me, and I think that's what started it. All right. So you saw that weather was a, a really important thing, and then decide that you're going to go into it. What did you do in terms of uh, getting your undergraduate education? Well, it, it, I kind of broke it up in pieces, which isn't the standard thing, but maybe it happens more often than not. But um, I, I originally got a, a, an early job working at Southern Illinois University as a weather observer. So at 16, I, I was certified as an aviation weather observer, and, and I took classes there at SIU. Prior to that, and, and really a part of that, I was also, um, as you were, an, a volunteer for an emergency management organization at, at a really young age, too. And so it so happens that the uh, emergency management director uh, for Carbondale, which is the home of SIU in, in, the, in the down part of the, the far down part of Southern Illinois, um, moved on. And so they needed a new emergency management director and I had a chance to get the job. And so I took it. So uh, I was in school for a while. Then I was an emergency manager, management director for several years and then realized I really wanted to get back in, into the meteorology. And so then move up, moved up to the St. Louis area, worked for a private weather corporation a company there called Weather Corporation. And um, so I worked there as I went to school at, at Parks College, which was a, a part of St. Louis University back in the day on the Illinois side of the river. I know lots of geologists from SIU and from SLU, but... <laughs> yeah, they have, a, they have a, a long history of studying the Madrid Fault and, and, and earthquakes in the middle part of the country. That's that was also a big interest growing up in Southern Illinois because you heard about the New Madrid Fault so much growing up. And, and even when I was an emergency manager, you know, we had to try to have some initial planning for that. And I even interacted with a, with a, a geologist who was studying the release of radon gas. 
And the theory was if the faults were getting stressed, maybe radon gas releases would increase. Maybe that was a precursor. And so that was very fascinating work too. And there was one incident where there was a spike in the radon gas. Not a lot happened, so maybe it didn't work out so well for the theory, but we paid a lot of attention to what was going on during that time period. It's such a weird place. So, I mean, I teach a lot of intro geology classes, and so it's always such a weird thing to bring up the New Madrid fault system because people are like, what? And I'm like, no, it's real big. Like, it's a real big deal. <laughs> well, it, it is. And, you know, and we interact with emergency management folks all the time, especially in Arkansas and Oklahoma. And so it's, it's obviously it's a big deal for the emergency management folks in the state of Arkansas. And also increasingly so for Oklahoma in the last, oh, 10 oh, 15 years, something like that, because there's the realization that if something really bad happens in eastern Arkansas, folks are going to probably move west for help because you're not going to cross the Mississippi River because the bridge systems will, will be compromised probably. So Oklahoma has to prepare for the idea that folks are going to come looking into Oklahoma for help. And we'll, you know, we'll feel it in Oklahoma too. And, it, and there may be some at least minor damage in the far east end of the state from a, a big New Madrid event. So mm -hmm. it, it has the attention of a lot of people that I know. See, John, I told you it's New Madrid, not New Madrid. <laughs> well, that's the Murfreesboro pronunciation. It may, you know, may I, I think different. it's the it's the it's the real thing. I'll I'll do that. <laughs> Just like it's Versailles, Missouri, instead of Versailles, but that's a whole nother show. <laughs> it, it definitely so. So, see, we've talked about you know weather hazards. We've already delved into to earthquake hazards. So, what exactly is it that you do now for a living? <laughs> <laughs> well, on any given day, it actually can kind of vary. I mean, you know, we were we were joking before we started. This is probably the most intensive administrative month that I have being the station supervisor at the weather forecast office in Tulsa. We, we're switching fiscal years, so there's budget things that have to be done, personnel evaluations, all kinds of forms that actually just get in the way of what I want to do, and that's looking at the weather and looking at what's going on with the, the colder weather coming up, you know, in the, the next few weeks. And so it's um, it can be a little bit of anything. So on any given day, I might be somewhat disconnected trying to be an administrator. Other days, I might be on the warning desk putting out tornado warnings. And so it's, it's, it's a cool job to have. It's, it's lots of, I, I can be involved in lots of things. So it's one of those things where I can, you know, I can do a lot of stuff, but not necessarily be good at anything. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's fun to do. I, I don't think a lot of folks really know uh, how the weather service office works that's that's near them how the wfo yes works so you're the mic or meteorologist in charge but what are the other roles that are surrounding uh, the weather service office and what do those folks do well you know the weather services is laid out in in in, in multiple tiers uh, the, the weather the local weather forecast office or river forecast center and there's there's both of those facilities in tulsa and there's there's 13 co-located offices that make make up part of the weather service but at, at the local weather forecast office um, we have the most direct contact with the folks that are being impacted by the weather so we coordinate fairly routinely with with emergency management emergency responders local media and so we're we're constantly sharing information back and forth with them and and it could be over a variety of things um, at, at the time that somebody's putting out tornado warnings let's say in a, in a local weather office there's another forecaster in the other corner of the room that's putting out flight forecasts for the airports in the area there's another forecaster in the on another corner of the office that's still looking at the the longer range forecast what what's going what do we have to deal with over the next several days and so 
Um, there's, there's a lot of things that can be going on at any, any one time. Um, and then you start throwing in the flooding. We have a service hydrologist who she, she focuses as on, on the, the flooding aspect of, of the big weather events. And then we can get involved in, in the actual uh, non-weather emergency management response. Because when you think about it, something bad goes on, fire, chemical release, or whatever, weather's going to impact that. And so if we know what they need and, and we have communication with them, we can provide them with uh, information about where the smoke plume might go, where the hazardous chemical m might end up with a wind shift. And so it's, we can go kind of, I, I kind of make the joke sometimes we're almost like the, the fire department of the sky. We know the fire department has quiet days and there's other times, you know, they're running all over the place with lights and sirens and, and we kind of have those days too. It's, I think, just like John just said, I don't think a lot of students coming up understand what the jobs are at the Weather Service. And I know um, I, just, I had a student just a couple of years ago who interned, at, and he's a geologist, so he did a hydrology GIS internship at the Salt Lake City Weather Service office, you know, and, and I always tell people, because they're like, okay, well, I see all these hydrology jobs, so what can I do? I'm like, you can work at the Weather Service. And they're like, no, did you hear me? I said hydrology. <laughs> like, yes. Like, and, and I think about like me being an undergrad, I don't think any of us really knew either. You know, like I've worked at the Sphere Storms Lab, so I got to know a little bit better, but I don't think a lot of us knew. And that's something I wanted to sort of ask you about in terms of talking to students, because that's something that I'm, you know, I mentor a lot of students and say like, these are your opportunities from the weather service. But I mean, to get into the government sector is a lot different than you know, working at like that weather corporation that you were talking about, right? It is. It, it's different, you know, and it's um, for one thing with being a government media, government meteorologist, you're you're trying to do a lot of things for a lot of people. Sometimes a, a, a corporation might be more specialized in, in the company that I worked at um, way back then. It was specialized in serving utilities. And so it's very specific temperature forecasts in a lot of cases. And those forecasts would be about you know, a number of days. Where in the weather service, you, you, you're asked to kind of serve the public, which needs a, a certain type of weather forecast message in a certain way. Then you're asked to serve the aviation community, which needs a different type of forecast. And you're also then asked to work with emergency managers who need a different type of forecast. And so there's, what you find is, is that in, in the group of, of an entire office, there's the ones that like snow. There's the ones that like severe weather. There's the ones that like the longer term climate. And so you have all of these things. The, the, um, the hard thing to do as a, as a manager in that environment is trying to get, you know, the shortstop to play shortstop on the day of the big game. And, you know, if, it's, if, if you come in and the staff who really doesn't like winter weather are the ones who are now going to be working it because you know, that's what the schedule said, um, you, you adjust around that. And when sometimes we've had station meetings and we've just said, hey, it looks, the winter weather looks bad, you know, the next few days. Let's just put everybody in their spot and, and folks will agree to adjust their schedules and, and, and work around things like that. But you also mentioned GIS. I think that the, the other, other disciplines, things, everything, other things that you can do to add into your hydrology or your, your weather background is important because um, mapping is, is huge. And so ultimately, you know, earth data is, is something that's geo-referenced. And so, and that's what GIS is. All weather data at some, in some fashion is, is some kind of GIS data set. Uh, but we also need extra, extra help in communications. We also need help uh, with emergency management folks. And so we see meteorology students, and when I get a chance to talk with them, I say, hey, what else interests, interests you? Are you into mapping? Are you into emergency management? 
Are you a good communicator, messenger? All of those things are good add-on disciplines to, to add on to your science degree. And there's a lot of other roles, too, that, uh, you know, like, first of all, every organization's got to have all kinds of administrative staff behind it, whether they're directly involved with that mission or not. But you've also got the unique challenge at the Weather Service of you operate observational hardware yes. in the field. And so you've got to have folks to work on that, too, that may or may not be into weather, but may be very into computer programming or maybe very into radars. That's a fact. I mean, we have a whole electronic and ITO support staff at, at each weather office. And so um, when the radar breaks on a Saturday evening, you know, we can't just, you know, go to the yellow pages and, and look up, hey, who can we get to show up? And so there are staff that when, you know, we ring the phone, you know, they come running. And so um, a lot of those folks um, are ex-military. They've, they've worked on weapon systems. They've worked on uh, aircraft radar, uh, air traffic control radar things like that. So they already have a, a background in similar types of hardware. And then when they leave their military career, oftentimes they are the perfect candidates to then move in into a weather service slot. Um, but in the, in the same, in the same token, you know, there's, there's other, other disciplines involved there, whereas it's just managing the data. You don't necessarily have to fix the equipment so much, but you have to be good at managing the data. Um, and so it's just, you're right. There's, there's, there's a whole, there's a whole host of things that you can, you can be involved in, in a, in a weather service office. Um, oftentimes when you, when we get onto the, the truly administrative side, like I have an administrative assistant, um, she's, she essentially, you know, we always say, you know, she runs the office. She tells me where to sign the things so that other stuff happens because what you end up having often a lot of times in the weather service is that, um, the administrator is just like me, a meteorologist who didn't have much of an administrative background, but just kind of ended up in that area. So, um, Having, but having that administrative assistant to help us help us even get all the I's dotted and the T's crossed, that, that's a big deal too. So lots of, lots of opportunities for folks if, if they have an interest in the weather service. How many weather service offices are there? There are 122 weather forecast offices. 13 of those are co-located with river forecast centers. And then there are national centers like Storm Prediction Center, Weather Prediction Center, Hurricane Center. And there's a few smaller offices that are scattered in more remote locations where they're not necessarily forecast offices, but they're there in some kind of fashion. Uh, and the Weather Service used to be laid out that way. If you go back into the early 90s, there was a definite two-tiered field system where um, for Arkansas, for example, Little Rock was the forecast office and Fort Smith was, was the local support office. In back in the day, Oklahoma City was the forecast office, and Tulsa would have been the, the support office for the eastern part of the state. When the Weather Service modernized, um, it, it pretty much tried to make most of the field offices that, that are actually right there closest serving to the people uh, as weather forecast offices. Um, but there's, there's a Weather Service presence, you know, even out in the Pacific. You can go out to some of the Pacific Islands and, and find what we'd say would, would be just Weather Service offices. Okay, so there's... I mean, most people, I don't certainly necessarily think about all of the other branches other than forecast offices when I'm, when I'm thinking about the weather service. But you mentioned starting out doing aviation weather observing and some emergency management, and I'm assuming you don't just go straight from there into administration. So what were some of the stops in between in your career? Well, as, you know, you, as we mentioned, you know, I took weather observations at the emergency management thing, went back to school. Uh, worked for a private company for a time and, and actually worked part-time for that company while I was in school. And then my we first weather service job would have been in one of the older style uh, local support offices in Key West, Florida. 
And it was kind of funny because I like drawing weather maps. I like putting colored pencils onto paper and drawing things and just just growing up and just thinking about stuff, you know, instinctively, I, I always said I, one place I really didn't want to work was like, you know, in Florida because there's just not enough data around there. And then the, the job I took was in Key West and you can't get much more <laughs> off the map than, than Key West. Um, but, but it was also interesting, too. And, I, and you know, when when I got there, you know, they were like, hey, Steve, we need you to get certified in radar work just as quick as you can. And, and that's what the office needed at that point. And I think Maybe six weeks into my weather service career, I was working a midnight shift, and I just remember looking up and, and just saying, I am the National Weather Service right now. I'm the only weather service employee awake within 100 miles of here, and if something bad happens, it's on me. And so those are kind of cool experiences. We don't have as much of that now. Um, and then I had the non-traditional thing of I, I took a, a forecaster job in Tulsa, and I, we, we arrived there, came to Tulsa in the very end of 1990, and I haven't left. And that's not really what you're supposed to do. Typically, a weather service career has been one where you take a job, move to get a promotion, take a job, you know, move, move to get a promotion. And I've been able to pretty much just stay in Tulsa. Um, and so, you know, I've been here 30 years now. Yeah, that's uh, that's quite a while in one location, but you can tell because you've got so many contacts around the area that know you and have had so much experience with you in various emergencies now, uh, and I think that maybe has really led into some of the, you know, I mentioned in the introduction some of the what I think is really groundbreaking work that you've done on how to f- communicate these forecasts to different audiences and better disseminate the information and test some of these new ideas. Well, you know, and it's, when it comes down to just really anything in life, it all ends up being about relationships. I mean, you can you can look at any career, you can look at lots of lots of situations, and it's and it's actually getting to know folks. And so, yeah, there's there's some folks that I've known a long time. Like I think we met when you were about sixteen in a spotter class way back when, John. So, um, you you do you get to you get to meet folks, and then a level of trust develops as you see common interests develop. Um, you know, like an emergency manager knows I'm approachable. They can come say, hey, Steve, would you ever consider doing this? That's how basically I got to meet Sid Sperry, who worked for the Oklahoma Rural Electric Cooperatives. And he had the idea and basically came to me and said, hey, you know, if you could give us an idea of what the ice and wind looks like in the next coming days, I can I can fairly well estimate how long the power is going to be out from an ice storm. And so it's 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 being approachable. And 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 I think that comes with just knowing folks. And so. Um, and, and you mentioned trying to communicate. Uh, we, I probably have a bias of trying to communicate to the emergency management world and to the media. That's because I, 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 I really, I really respect and, and understand how the the TV and radio meteorologists work. If you look, the vast majority of the world is going to get their weather from from radio and, and particularly television. And so, you know, the world doesn't necessarily, you know, outside the emergency management world, they don't know me. And so, I've always just thought. If we take care of the emergency managers and we help take care of, of the, the TV meteorologists and get them what they need, then everybody benefits. And it doesn't have to be this competition, well, I have a cooler graphic than you and, and, and more people follow my Twitter account than your Twitter account, that you know, we just all pull on the rope in the same direction. And to me, that works out real well. And so, um, that, and it leads to those things where we, you know, we developed the uh, and I, th- I think what you were thinking about on a couple, I, a couple of times you mentioned innovative things. I think they're what we've called our chiclet page. Um, and we, it's our, we, I guess its real name is our decision support page. Anybody that's looked at the Tulsa Weather Office's webpage can find that. 
And there's a series of, of, of colored indicators on that page that that relate to potential hazards for the next seven days across the area. And the little indicators looked an awful lot like chiclet gum after we put a little 3D look to them. And so we just called it the chiclet page once, and that's the name that's kind of stuck with it. But <laughs> it's things like that. You know, when the emergency manager comes in, they can click on that one thing, and they can look across seven days of potential weather hazards, and they know how they, they maybe want to plan the rest of their day or their next several days. So when, when coming up with ideas like this, are you more of a uh, ask forgiveness, not permission type of idea tester, would you say? Or, or yeah, you, did you develop no, I mean, these things and kind of trial them with folks? How do you go about your process of coming up with an idea and then eventually getting it to a very well accepted deployment like that? Well, I think part of it is, is understanding the rules and where the gray areas are and where when somebody says, hey, I don't think that's exactly right being able to have at least enough of a logical interpretation of the rules that make them go, okay, I, I can see that. And so I try not to ever break rules, but I will stand with both feet on the line oftentimes. Um, <laughs> but you have to do it knowing that there are certain lines you can put your feet on and there's other lines you don't put your feet on those lines. And I think with time, the world has kind of allowed us to do certain things. And you know, so I, I noticed there's times that within the weather service world or within the weather community there are there are times where you can tell people don't particularly think we're going in the right direction and so maybe they don't support what we do but they don't stop us either because we've we have occasionally gotten into some things that was that were kind of worthwhile and so we get the benefit of the doubt a lot by by doing that <laughs> do you get to push all this stuff to other weather service offices how autonomous are you guys well, you know, we, it used to really bother the, the directors of the Weather Service 20 years ago that, because it basically that we were all islands, essentially. We were all doing our own thing. Um, and, and as the Internet matured and evolved and you began to see what every office's own thing was, you saw some good, you saw some stuff you didn't understand, but mostly you just saw lots of different things. And as the Internet allowed the world to see all behind the, the, the curtain a little bit and we all began to watch offices much more remote from us, um, there's been more of a push to try to, to become um, more consolidated, more consistent in, in what we do. Um, and, and that kind of gets important down, especially you know, at, the, at the state level and higher. You know, the, the local fire chief may not really care what the forecast office next door, you know, half a state away is up to, but maybe the state emergency manager or the governor's office does. And when you present them with a map that looks a little bit out of sync, um, they may not like that. The, the seasoned emergency manager can look at that map and say, that tells me there's uncertainty. I can, I can use that odd look to the map to say, hey, look, you know, Norman's got this, Wichita's got that, and Tulsa's got that. That means there's not a lot of agreement right now in the world. But if you show that to someone who's not really in the job to try to interpolate the, the, the deeper layers of, of those data, um, and they just need to know what's up, a map like that can, can, can throw them a curve. So um, you're, you're seeing more sharing of information. And, and some of our information, some of what we do does get pushed out. Um, there are, every weather office in the country will have some version of a chiclet page before long. You're seeing that spread. It, it'll be a little bit different than what we did. Of course, every office will like what they did originally, so we'll say ours is better. Um, <laughs> but it's all good stuff. And, and it all is trying to come together from the bottom line of, like, let's get good information out to people. When you talk to the public, I mean, do they 
understand what the weather service office does because I don't feel like maybe a lot of people understand the level of interaction with emergency managers that the weather service has. I think about this because so much during COVID, especially all the evacuations due to the hurricanes, it seems like, you know, you needed more spots and it felt like there was a lot more like emergency management stories, but I don't think a lot of people understand the relationship that the weather service plays in those decisions. Do you think? Yeah, yeah, I don't think they necessarily do. I mean, we they, the, they'll see the weather service, and, and it, it depends on where you're at. Um, in this area, the, the media has, in, in northwest Arkansas, eastern Oklahoma, the, the media has been great. I mean, we, I, and I think it comes from the idea that we all try to pull on the rope together. And so, you know, the, the media will interview us and, and ask us questions where that doesn't necessarily happen in, in other areas and where it's like, you know, they, it's such a competition that the TV stations don't need to have the public looking at other weather sources. They need them looking at, you know, just their station. Um, so the media around here helps the folks understand at least our basic role. And, and, and over the last 20 years, you know, when I say I work for the National Weather Service, people go, okay, you know, 15, 20 years ago, they'd say, well, what TV station do you work for? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but it's, it's better now, but I still, you know, they don't understand maybe that the, the, the government to government interaction there, that we're the, the, the federal meteorologists within this area trying to help, help the, the, the state and local emergency folks make the best decisions they can about, about what's going on. And they probably don't know that some of what's going on is being fueled by a conversation with a meteorologist. So there are a lot of ways that the Weather Service does disseminate this information to all of these different customers. And really, it seems like to me anyway, you have to support many of the legacy ones because you don't know who's still using that, right? So, uh, you know, the the Weather Service radios, which are great for, for warning tools that have the, the audio computer voice, which didn't always used to be a computer voice. Right. Uh, and, and some of these technologies, like... Uh, not a lot of people are looking at METARs regularly now. And some might even say, well, why do we still have the METAR format? Because characters are basically free in, in the internet world when it's not a teletype. So how does, when you're developing these new techniques, you're ultimately adding to the support burden and the workload of, of everybody, because we're still, we're still doing all of these older things and adding more new because you don't know who's still using or depending on those. So how do you try to balance all of the communication techniques, making sure everything's updated and all of your all of your customers have what they need? Well, it's, it's really hard. You, you bring up great points there because, I mean, if you think back when the social media world was just beginning to evolve, remember that the Weather Service was still putting out everything in all capitals. And so we couldn't just do a cut and paste and put that into Twitter and put that into Facebook. Or when we did, people would say, why are you yelling at us? It's like, well, because all of our texts are in capitals because there were still, there maybe there were still some teletypes around, but there were still some systems out there that could only deal with the, with the capital letter set. And so it took forever for us to, to, to get in this mixed case world. And you'll still see some things are still forced to be in capitals because it, it goes back to some kind of legacy requirement. Um, so it, it's hard, and, it, and that's why things take a while to, to go forward in the weather service because you can go from a good idea that say, hey, you know, the, the emergency managers in this part of the country really like what Office X is doing. And so then a few more offices have to test and like, yeah, that really did look good. Then you have to get it to a point where at a national level it's supported. And then that's where you get into even at the national level of the weather service, they say, 
do we have the support staff? Who's going to fix it if it breaks? Uh, do, do we have the server system or do we have whatever hardware we need? And, you know, our budgeting, you know, works in about a three-year kind of step where if we want something significant in the weather service, we have to get into the budget three years in advance. And so a really good idea now would probably take, you know, a year or two to vet, then maybe another year for a national approval for it to happen, and then maybe three years to, if there's any big hardware software things. And so uh, you, you can easily be, you know, uh, four, five, six years down the road after, after a good idea emerges. But it's all trying to address what you said, John, was that you, you can't just change things because, you know, knowing, knowing how much code you write and for all the reasons that you write it, if we just suddenly said, we're not doing this anymore, we may break, you know, just countless numbers of scripts that are driving TV things and emergency management things and other data things that would drive people crazy. I was always surprised when we were doing work on MetPy at, and I didn't really believe it even necessarily at first, but you, you make some very small incremental change and we make a release. And even though it was documented, you know, okay, we're going to change this. There was a warning. Uh, it, it was always amazing within 12 hours, the amount of emails that I got. <laughs> well, yeah, about, because I, you, you broke my thing. <laughs> I don't read instructions until I have to. Instructions are the last resort of understanding something. So yeah, no one's going to read that before, even though you thought you had told them real well. So, oh, see, that's a, I, people are. I remember somebody like and had their computer out, and they were complaining about that little banner that keeps coming up about Java. You know, do you want to turn Java off? And I'm like, I can't. Like, how am I going to look at the weather service webpage? Like, what are they right. going to do? <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and I'm like, you guys have this, right? You got this. <laughs> Yeah, and then all of a sudden the pressure's on the government, like, this is going away, and you need to change a bunch of things, like, right now. So sometimes the shoe does get on the other foot, and it's, it's a weather service scrambling to keep up with the world. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it goes both ways. Oh, I, love, I love it, because I always get that, um, I don't always, but I love it when I do get the, um, like, the little user survey from the weather service, you know, because everyone always asks me, because they're like, oh, you, you got a meteorology degree? Like, where do you get your weather? And I'm like, let me tell you. And these people, people just don't go to the weather service webpage, right? Um, and so I've been, like, funneling people there. And my brother-in-law now, when I call him, it's that little, eh, eh, eh. Like, that's the, because <laughs> he shovels snow in Iowa. So now he's, like, all weather service all the time. And it's really funny to me how few people, like, go to that as a resource. And it truly is just TV, really. Um, it, that's what folks are comfortable with, and it's yeah. easy. But, but you know, so we know what you said is, is right, you know, where the, the, the weather weenies in the world, they'll come to the weather service Twitter accounts and Facebook pages and web pages, um, but a lot of the public may not. So we know that when someone makes a comment, we have to try to figure out, was that a, a particularly sophisticated user that commented? Because we think most of the folks that come directly to us are probably fairly sophisticated in, in, in some aspect of, of what they're looking for. Or, or was this a comment that came from a different direction? And so um, we, you do have to be at least aware of the fact that everybody has their own specific needs and they're going to want it slightly different. And what's good for one set of folks may not be the best for others. And you're going to hear about it if you change something. Yeah, and if you tell Bob that's going to go hunting on Saturday to go look at a taff, it's not going to go so well. Uh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Although there's a, there's a ton of information in the TAF, and if you know that there's actually good hourly information in there, it's a smart place to go get information. But you can't hardly read the thing if you're not a pilot. So, 
yeah, they're, uh, it, it just, it always amazes me when you go to the weather service website, the hurricane center website, storm prediction center website, uh, you know, you can spend five minutes there or you can spend an hour there, uh, or two hours there. It's just ah, yeah. <laughs> so many depths of information. Uh, and I, I find that it will fill the available time I have to, Amen. <laughs> to look at the data. <laughs> And that's what the one thing we tried, you know, we talked about, you know, trying to have a more consistent approach. That's one thing that the weather service has tried to do, although it, it, they get us herded and then a cat will run. Another office will be a cat and run a little bit. And so things will change. But that's one thing we hear a lot that if you, you know, if you're in this part of the country, you're used to clicking over in the middle left part of the Web page. And that got you yesterday's high temperature. Now it's in the lower right part of somebody else's Web page. And so. There's been a push to try, ha- try to have a more consistent look for the National Weather Service pages. So at least you're, you know about what part of the page to click on when you're looking for a certain piece of information. But then you'll see that innovation kick in and somebody will come up with kind of a cool idea and the web page morphs a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was going to save this question, but I'll ask it now since we're talking about forecasts and whatever. What do you think? So I, I lived in Denver for a while um, and I've lived in Iowa. And so look at all these forecasts. What area of the country, the U.S., do you think is the hardest place to forecast? And you know, I, well, you know, I've seen some statistics that it's, and it depends on what your focus is, but I've seen some statistics from the high range, you know, the higher, the higher plains in the front range of, of the Rockies back diagonally, back down towards Oklahoma and Arkansas. There's, there's a lot of things that go on, a lot of potential air mass changes with cold air coming you know, the availability comes straight down the, the, the flatter plains and be unimpeded with dry air from the dry lines, Gulf moisture. Then you start mixing in some terrain. Um, I've seen pre- people present verification statistics showing that, for example, that computer models struggle the most in, in those areas. And so it's just, just a measure of the idea that it, there's a lot of variability there. Um, but there's something there's something tough, you know, anywhere you go. I One thing I always kind of talk about trying to forecast say snow anywhere around the, the Tulsa area is that we get to see the weather systems as they're re-ingesting moisture. Sometimes a very potent system will cross the Rockies and its surface reflection uh, isn't really there because it's going through the terrain. A lot of the moisture dumps out in the, in the higher elevations. And then the system emerges over the high plains and it's kind of a, it's, it, it's a race then. Will the moisture get back in it in time before it can exit the area? And sometimes we have to switch the forecast from partly cloudy and maybe some flurries to something pretty exciting in the, in the, in the order of just a few hours. But while that's happening, I, w- I would always joke with my friends back in St. Louis, like, but you guys got to see that happen in Oklahoma City or Tulsa or Fayetteville. And you got six or eight hours to change your forecast. We had two or three hours. So we look way dumber than you guys for that reason. Um, that's awesome. That, obviously, that's the nexus of why all these weather weenies come to Oklahoma. So <laughs> I, it, it is, I mean, the, it's cause we, we get a little bit of any, everything. If you, you know, you start throwing in Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri, I mean, ice, severe weather, flooding, big snows, it, it's all, it's all right there. And it happens, you know, in a lot of places too, but, um, and of course, you still start throwing in some universities in the middle of part of the country that are famous for some of their weather programs. And it's just a big draw. <laughs> My fa- I, I'll go back through my phone and it's just littered with like radar pictures. But then my favorites are like the warning map pictures where you've got blizzard warning and tornado warning on the same map. Like I love those days. Those are the best. 
those were those were fun to write those those state forecasts when we got to do those where you could we actually could type out winter storm watch north, uh, tornado watch south type of thing. Those were exactly. those were cool forecasts. I love it. Those are my favorite. <laughs> I love a good, strong frontal passage in Oklahoma. Nothing like that to, to blow the forecasts and, and make good. just really insane maps. Good for well, a pause. Well, and you guys know that it's, you know, you can have a 20 degree temperature difference over not that many miles. And for so for someone to think that I could look at that and then hit tomorrow's high temperature forecast with any reasonable degree of accuracy, like, you know, if, if, if I did, it would be total luck. I mean, but I would swagger for that day. I mean, I'd like to look at me. But you know when you go into those situations that when you look at the ensemble data and you see all the possibilities and, and it, it literally does, you know, say 48 to 88 are, is the reasonable range of potential. Um, you just know that it, you're going to give it your best shot. And then that's why I say sometimes that's why God made the evening shift just to make all those updates. <laughs> And you know, I, I do think one thing that people maybe not realize too is when they're looking at a forecast from a weather service office or getting something from a TV station who is working closely with you all, they're not getting model output that's just been repackaged and thrown back at them as they would from some of the larger, more commercial websites. But they're getting folks that have got years or sometimes even decades of experience looking at that area and knowing all the nuances there. You know, that's true. And that's still a, that's still a big plus as far as, as the Weather Service is concerned, that humans are still in the middle of that process. It, it is an interesting evolution that's going to happen over the next 50 years. Is, you know, we know computers are going to get better. And there's going to be that that time where maybe we get you know a, a forecast system that's really good and doesn't need much touching beyond so many hours. You, you would think though we're still a long way away from being perfect just looking out the window. Um, it, it takes such a high resolution set of, of observations and smart ways to, to make that all fit into those nasty physics equations that, that make all the models run. I think there's going to be a job for a human for quite a while, but um, we will see probably with time, you know, more emphasis placed on day one and two and saying days three, four, five, and six are probably going to be close enough a lot of days, but still humans are going to be there. But that's, that's going to be the challenge for the weather service and, and the forecasters um, is, is to maintain that skill because, you know, one of the forecasters in Tulsa would say, you know, you don't plug your electric clock up when you want to know the time, you have to let the clock run. And basically, if I'm if I'm a, if I'm the pitcher sitting in the bullpen and the robot pitcher is doing just fine and you haven't brought me in for two thirds of the season, don't expect me to be super sharp. And when you bring me in in the World Series in October and all of a sudden you're getting panicked. So um, we're going to have to be smart of how we keep the humans involved in that. And, and that's that's going to be a big challenge for the weather world going forward over the next 10, 20 years. You just reminded me that I had to check the check the score in the World Series right now. But thank you. <laughs> it's three nothing Tampa Bay at four. Is it all right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, so Steve, as you mentioned earlier, we've known each other for quite a while now, and knowing you and your hobbies, I'm going to say that they are exceedingly technical compared to <laughs> most people that I know. Uh, so did, did your hobbies come from your job or did your job come from your hobbies or how did that, how did that work? Probably job came from the interest. I, mean, I think I've always liked 
I've always liked radios as much as I've liked weather. That's for whatever reason that's always been in there. So when I, I wasn't very old, I mean, you know, I was like probably six or seven years old. Um, a man that my that my mom knew brought me a little, basically toy walkie-talkie. That's what you'd go to any store right now, pick up off the shelf for for ten dollars. And he said our local civil defense. Um, communicates on this on this channel during weather, and so that was like a cool thing for me. It combined weather and it combined a radio, and that was a big push. And so uh, for me to to have the gadgets and have and, and the weather, and of course radar, uh, it, it's radar's uh, fascination because it's 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 all geeky gadget gadgetry stuff. It's it's being able to measure something from a distance that you can't touch, and so a lot of it, it it's just been interesting. Um, I just I just wish I was smarter. I'm glad I know folks like you all that I can ask questions to once in a while. But just to be able to tie, you know, radio and now, you know, we've, you and I have, have played around with with drones and 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 we, we talk radar stuff and, and we look at Python code and all that stuff just ties together. And, and really, sometimes you, know, you look at it, and you go, this is am I, you know, are you wasting time? But what I've learned over the years is that eventually some little thing that I'm doing that may look like a waste of time for a couple of days ends up playing a role in something more important that I get into down the road. And so I've just learned to accept that I should explore all those things because there will be a use one of these days. Well, I don't know anybody else that would uh, buy a software defined radio and then go driving around, uh, sitting with it outside their car, trying to map the beam width of their radar, or the beam pattern just of their radar, just because they were interested. <laughs> we, Do yeah, you we not did know that. anyone else? I mean, really? <laughs> I think he might know someone. He, if yeah. he looked in the mirror, he might. Um, <laughs> so, and, <laughs> moving there's on. There's <laughs> also a uh, a device that I've seen uh, when when we've uh, met up for lunch before where you started uh, making a sensor out of toilet parts. <laughs> yeah, we did, actually. Uh, this goes back to the, to the big Gulf oil spill back quite a few years now, and we were just watching the decision support uh, being rendered to the, to the officials trying to deal with the cleanup and, and the protection of, of, of initially life and property after all that, but then ultimately the cleanup. And so one of the things they requested was um, was something I had never heard of, and it was the wet bulb globe temperature. Um, and looking at it, I, I you know quickly looked it up, and it's something that I think was developed originally by the Marines in the in the fifties. Um, it was something that basically they could still get folks to be all that they could be in their basic training, but not cause harm when the weather was bad. So it was actually a way of being able to train harder and safer. And OSHA had picked up on that. And so folks that are out in, in, in hazmat suits running around the beach trying to pick up tar balls and, and clean things up on, in, on, in warm weather, um, they were very, very aware that you know, heat stress was a, was a problem. And so we realized, we learned that it was, you know, do you measure that? One of the ways you do it directly is you've got a six-inch copper globe and you paint it black. Well, where's, where can you get a, something close to a six-inch copper globe that you can mess with? You go to the hardware store and you get one of those old copper floats for your toilet. So that's what we did. It wasn't six inches, but we at least wanted to see what would happen. And so then we painted it black. We shoved a thermometer up in it, put it out in the sunshine and watched how it tracked. Tried to learn how, you know, how sensitive it was and what kind of readings were to be made. Um, we eventually, several of us at the weather office in Tulsa, we partnered uh, with, um, with um, a math professor at uh, from Oral Roberts University, Dr. Demicelli. He's, he's 
he's passed away now, but it was, it was great for him because he took all of that great knowledge he has of math, which he would admittedly say sometimes just seemed like it was just, he just had that knowledge just to torture students, but he wanted to be able to, to take some of this stuff and turn it into things that, that could be useful. So he helped us decompose some big polynomial equations. We ended up writing some, some equations that would allow us to use standard weather service elements that we currently make as, as in the forecast office and, and, and produce at least a, a, an estimate of the wet bulb globe temperature. So this year, that actually became an official element within the Weather Service's National Digital Forecast Database. So it, it's kind of rare to go from a trip to the hardware store to go get some toilet parts to 10 years later, it's now an official forecast element of the Weather Service. I mean, did That's, you just uh, have to float that idea? <laughs> <laughs> At least it didn't get flushed. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ask a question quick, John, before I keep going. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that's a that's a great story. And one of the things that you know you mentioned drones. I know we've messed around with just putting all kinds of low cost sensors on a hobby drone and flying it around. Uh, I think just collecting as much data as you can and seeing what you can get out of it is something that you've got a a very good intuition about the atmosphere and about what's going to be useful and what's not. Uh, whereas people like me, I just, I know how to make computers do what I want. Uh, but you're the people that actually come up with all the, the cool ideas and figure out ways to make that something that's useful. Well, and one thing I think you and I discovered one day a few years ago, and I call it the Lehman layer. Uh, but you remember we flew, it was, I think it was like a, around New Year's Eve one year. It was pretty chilly. And on, a, on the ascent and on the descent leg, we went through a fairly narrow, stable layer of faster winds. And I, it, it's surprising. I mean, I don't think it was more than 20 feet thick, but we hit it on the way up. We hit it on the way down. Um, I heard it when the, when the engines, when the rotors uh, began to strain a little bit. Like, wonder what it just flew through because the, the engines were fighting. And we got it back down, and, and John had some, some instruments on that that he that he'd worked up. And it's like... Uh, who would know that a 20-foot layer of wind would exist fairly stably, what, 100 feet off the ground or 120 feet off the ground? So I'm, I have no idea what it was. I don't know if it's useful or not, but that's filed away. And one of these days, <laughs> it may show back up in a, in a thought. But I think that's what's really cool about science is, is don't not try something. Even measuring for the sake of measuring just because you can, one of these days may point to something. Um, so I, I think it's all cool. Yeah, I remember that we were when we did that. I wanted to say it was three to four meters thick, so yeah, about the same, the same thickness you remembered. Uh, and then I remember we also went out. To, I think there was a an incoming front, and flew, and that resulted in a spectacular crash. <laughs> it was of one of my drones. Yeah, there were pieces <laughs> scattered all through the sky and raining down. It was kind of oh, cool. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fun. <laughs> Yeah, we thought we could get one more, one more little uh, run up and down in before the winds got too high, and that Always. was uh, false. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we recovered so, most of the pieces. So, I mean, I think you got all your material back. Just not in one back it, together. It has flown again. Oh, good. All right. 
Uh, yes, it's actually hanging uh, from the ceiling in the shop right now. So, <laughs> you know, we, we've talked about a lot of these technology aspects of sensors and models. And what technology are you most excited about right now? Well, you know, the, the, the drone things are, are really cool. I think, you know, from the standpoint of, um, you know, I think we can marry some of that technology up with the higher resolution local models that, that are available to be run. And, and, and when we've been able to run those, we don't always have them. They're not always available to us. Um, some years we've been able to run them, some years not. Um, but we have, we have been able to see environments that we could tell with locally, locally important for tornado formation. The, the best example I can think of has been several years ago now, and, and Tulsa folks remember the tornado. It was an EF2 that uh, touched down just northwest of downtown Tulsa. Um, skirted some areas in, in the north part of the metro area, but for the most part stayed just on the outskirts of a lot of population. And you couldn't thread a strong tornado through a metro area much, much cleaner than you could with that one. But using local model data, using local model data, we saw an environment that was leading to that. And Ed Kalanisi, the warning coordination meteorologist at the Tulsa office, he issued a tornado warning based solely on the fact that that he saw the three-dimensional evolution of the storm as he expected to see it on radar, which was matching perfectly the, the data that we were getting by from running local models and doing very high-resolution digital analysis. And so he put it all together. I'm, I hear him furiously click around on the keyboard, and I'm asking him, what are you up to? And he goes, well, I'm issuing a tornado warning. I'm like, already? He goes, yeah, this, this is going right down the path. All the data you're saying is lining up exactly with what I think the 3D evolution should be. So he didn't have to wait for a super strong rotating mesocyclone to trigger the tornado warning. And what, what really was interesting in that event was that I think it caused some of the Tulsa media some, some, you know, some strain because we've got a tornado warning out and there's not a real good wall cloud visible yet. There's no reports. The radar is not lit up. You're not able to track a strong couplet to say, this is what we're tracking. At one point, one of the TV stations, I got text messages because people, um, people were texting me telling me what's going on. Uh, we're saying, hey, one of the stations is actually saying you've issued this warning because you're running local models and you think something's going to happen in North Tulsa. How cool is that? And then 27 minutes later, the tornado formed. It was the most surreal day I've spent probably in the weather office where the tornado warning was out and it's 27 minutes before it touches down and I'm able to stand at the window and look back to the west across Tulsa going, wow, the sirens are blaring. A tornado is very likely going to hit Tulsa here in the next 15, 20 minutes. And right now, every I is dotted and T is crossed. There's no panic in the room. Because normally, tornadoes are such fast-breaking fast things. You, you've got so much going on at once that it's hard to get everything covered so well so quickly. Um, and I think you tie back in, if you tie back in drones, if we were able to have that kind of environment and be able to have a local drone flight, if there was a, a, a research team or even just an operational team in the future way down the road, that could have that could have flown a sounding in the in the vicinity of that data, and that could have given us even more confidence to say that hey yeah our local model has actually caught this environment and this drone sounding that just that, that we just you know happened in the last ten minutes over to the west of Tulsa perfectly matches with the environment I expected this thing is going to do it so I think there's ways to tie in all that sensing with the local modeling data and you know at, at times you know we can scratch the surface on that and then all the folks from Tulsa remember. A couple years later, we didn't completely miss an EF2 tornado in Tulsa, but we missed the beginning of it, and it was it didn't thread its way harmlessly through some of the edges, you know, and through some of the trees. It touched down in a populated area, started doing damage immediately. 
Uh, the only thing that was that was a positive of that was that it happened at you know one o'clock, one thirty in the in the in the night slash morning, and so the the number of folks who were moving around in the area was was smaller. Um, so we've had we've had successes that you wouldn't believe, but there's still the challenges. So anytime you know you think you understand the weather, you better fall back a second and and, and not get too proud of yourself because the weather will remind you that you don't understand everything that you think you do. One of the uh, other experiments that I know that you've done and one that uh, cost me some money as well. So that's that's one thing that I think is also one of our hobbies is spending each other's money uh, <laughs> is uh, you one year for Christmas got an infrasound sensor. Uh, so low, low frequency air pressure variations. And you did too eventually. <laughs> and, and eventually I did too. Uh, and you... This is one of those things where I said, you know, you've got a lot more insight than I, I, you know, I set it up and I even went in and I, oh, how can I tweak the analog to digital converter? How can I do this? Uh, whereas, you know, you're over here looking and finding incredible things in your data. And one of those was a tornado. Well, it, it sure looked like it. I mean, it was, it was a tornado that was in um, the southeast Tulsa metro area, kind of north Broken Arrow, if people are familiar with the, with the Tulsa area. Um, the the noise that was recorded on the uh, on the infrasound microbarometer matched up pretty much exactly with the the detailed damage survey that that Ed performed um, the next day, um, and so it's you know it, yeah that's a sound and so the wind direction plays a role you can't always get the detections you want but you know we've seen some things and we know infrasound properties the lower frequency. Uh, infrasound can travel great distances and, and doesn't dampen out like like the higher frequencies and so I, I think there's there's things there too and so we've talked with some of the folks at Oklahoma State University about infrasound and drones and so they're doing some neat stuff and so I think you know it, it's hard to show really it's always hard in, in some of the atmospheric science world to, to have a to know that you had a definite hit on certain things but you see enough going on to like yeah that's really probably what that was and and this deserves more look and this deserves more research for sure uh, it's a very frustrating thing uh, for researchers in that field too is you know you're never going to get uh, when i was in grad school if i wanted to verify that what i saw was correct i could just run the experiment again in the lab, but for, you know, real seismologists, for real weather folks, uh, you don't ever get to run that experiment again. <laughs> right. And, you know, with the infrasound and, and you, you well know, John, that, that it will, it's sensitive to movement and noise inside your house. So first thing I did when I came back and looked, you know, I talked, I, I quizzed Cheryl, like, okay, were you opening doors? Were you slamming cabinets? Did you drop something? Did you do anything to make the house vibrate? Cause this is really pretty cool information. Um, but I don't, you know, so you have to start checking all that cause you're right. You don't, you only have that one shot to catch, to catch. And I've seen other, other infrasound signatures that look like they could be along the lines, you know, about the right time of tornadoes, but none really as, as good as the one in, in North Broken Arrow, for whatever reason, it, it lined up very well to the, to the damage track and, and the radar data that we saw. So weather's hard. Yeah. You, you, if you miss your opportunity, you miss your opportunity. That's one thing I always say is like, it's so because I did geology and meteorology, just like John. And uh, it's like the physics is the same. It's different timescales. And, yeah, so that kind of stinks for <laughs> for weather timescales versus... <laughs> yeah, but even, like, for your earthquake timescales, yeah, I mean, 
I mean, if, if you decided, well, this will be the half hour I take that station down because I need to do some maintenance or I want to, I want to be like John and, and, and tweak the, the analog to digital converter. And that's when the earthquake happens. It's like, well, yep. there you go. Um, so earth science yeah, is hard. I, if I had to count uh, the number of times that I've slapped myself for taking equipment offline to, to try something, to work on it and said, oh, you know, I'll put that back up tomorrow. Uh, it, it's, it's 530. I really need to get home. I'm hungry. And then at 6.30 that night, a, you know, magnitude 7.8 strike. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I just need two of everything, just in case. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you guys should get sponsorship for your podcast and see if people donate so you can buy two of everything. That'd oh, be good. amen to that. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Including two microphones. Then we could be in stereo finally, right? Ooh. <laughs> Everybody wants that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. So, Steve, is there anything else that you'd like to to add to our discussion before we wrap up? No, it seems like we talked about a, a lot of stuff. It's just, it's, 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 it's been fun to to be on on your on your podcast. I mean, there's, I knew it would be. I knew there'd be tons of stuff to talk about, and I knew the conversation would go in all kind of directions. And it it, it was it was very enjoyable. Glad glad you all invited me on. Well, I'm sure we'll have you back on. And if folks want to follow you and all of the crazy things that you're up to, uh, how would you like to be found on the internet? I'm probably most active on Twitter. Um, I look at Facebook some, but not as much as I used to. Um, to me, for whatever reason, just instinctively, it feels like Twitter requires long posts to try to explain what you just said and, and be able to rebut anything that's, a, that's likely to come back your direction where Twitter, you can post an image, post a thought, and go on. And usually, and people pick at me for this because I, I usually just post fun stuff or, you know, you see the weather or, or kind of pick at folks or, or it's coded. They're like, why did, he just, why did he just tweet that? And it's usually a message to someone. So someone in the Twitter world got what I just did, but maybe the rest of the world didn't. But my Twitter handle is spiltz. And so if you follow me there, that's, that'd be great. And um, say hi once in a while if you want to. All right, great. Well, I think you're going to uh, to stay with us for something really entirely different in this week's Fun Paper Friday. Yay! So, uh, Shannon found this paper for us, and this is a, a doozy. <laughs> it's super funny. Um, <laughs> I don't even remember where I found this, but it's real good. Uh, so it's by Whitlinger et al., and it's the ant odometer stepping on stilts and stumps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> and apparently it's been a question in the insect community of how do different bugs know their their path that they're taking out from their, their nest to find food and how do they come back? So... so you know, there's this idea of having an integral uh, reckoning, sort of like you would in a an inertial navigation system. Uh, there's all, all kinds of ways. Maybe it's stars. We I think we've talked about stars before and maybe bees, it seems like. Uh, no, it was in dung beetles. <laughs> oh, yes, it was dung beetles <laughs> using stars. I was That's just going to say, this is not our first um, entomological celestial navigation paper. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, dung beetles. <laughs> But this isn't just figuring out where you're going, but how far it is to get there, right? I mean, I paid a lot for my fancy 
pedometer. And I know you probably have an Apple Watch because that's the kind of person you are, right? <laughs> <laughs> I do. Well, what about you, Steve? Do you have a uh, a wrist health shamer? <laughs> I do not. I just my iPhone counts my steps, and I check it there. It's it's hard when you're an ant. There's no pockets. For yeah. For the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I thought you would like this experimental setup too, John. It seems like one of those, you know, very fun experimental setups that you would be proud of. You know, I I like it because it's simple, but I must admit if somebody had said, hey, we want you to determine (laughs) if ants use step counting to uh, determine how far they've gone, I would have way over-engineered it compared to this. Yeah, correct. So they just like... (laughs) You know, they've got the nest and this food pile, and they make these ants walk in these little rails, and they pick the good ones <laughs> to rip their legs off of, essentially, right? <laughs> yeah, so they, they train them that uh, you're going to go 10 meters between the nest and the feeder, and then they, uh, let's see, what do they, the, the exact wording in the paper was was pretty great here. Uh, see, they... Uh, are subjected to experimental manipulation. (laughs) And some of the ants have stilts glued onto their legs, and some have the leg partially amputated to become a stump. And then they put them in a long test track and release them and measure how far they go before they start doing this zigzag trying to find home seeking pattern when they think they're close to the nest. And it's exactly what they expected, which is the ones with stilts overestimated and the ones with stumps underestimated. (laughs) Poor little guys. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The stumps, or the stilts, by the way, were pig hairs. So some poor undergrad, who probably didn't even make it on this paper, was gluing pig hair to ant legs. (laughs) Yeah. And then some other point yeah. underground was, you know, amputating the antlers. <laughs> and yet another one had to, so they were interested in, is it just a timing thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, so another one had to look at high-speed video of these ants and count leg movements per unit time. <laughs> and they ended up determining that uh, the ones that were on stilts actually moved more slowly because they had all this added weight and bulk and couldn't move their legs as fast. Uh, so it's not just a timing thing. Yes. It really is step counting. That was like, did you, this optic, there's this optic flow hypothesis. And then that other thing about, um, yeah, did they just like feel it? It was really weird. The things have been put forward that we haven't figured out about how insects know where, where to go um yeah there's a supplemental movie that you should absolutely watch attached to this <laughs> yes if you want to see ants on stilts uh, <laughs> it's there uh-huh. and they also talk about the idea of uh, somebody has posited the energy hypothesis yeah this was which really is somehow strange. the ants can it's sort of like coulomb counting in a battery for your yeah. phone know how much is left somehow they're saying okay well i've expended x joules of energy so i must have gone x far but that doesn't work because it turns out they're really good at keeping distance whether they have a load in their mandibles or not so there you go yeah that was a that was very interesting that yeah these little ants are doing that kind of 
calculations, but obviously they're not. And I thought they just of... followed their their own that they left a, a a scent trail of some sort, and they just followed that. Is that was that ever addressed in the paper? Could you tell? No, it wasn't. No, I thought it was. I thought it was pheromones too. Yep. But maybe it's like there's like the first they talk about like the first ant is the one that like sets the root. And so maybe that's it, but maybe over time, like that doesn't matter, I guess. Hmm. Yeah. I wonder if because they changed the, from the training to the test, they changed tracks. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's probably it. They got rid of the pheromones there. But there would still be pheromones from the previous ants that got. Yeah, that went through. I, I don't know. But maybe it's only that one that drops them. Maybe the rest of them don't. And they have to be That's from the same point. colony because uh, they they know when they're from different colonies. I've had a few ant farms, as you might would guess. If you, <laughs> if you get the wrong ant in the wrong mix, it, it's not good for the one single ant that gets in the wrong part of the ant farm. So, oh, oh. yikes! Ants are terrible, terrible things. <laughs> I love most bugs, but man, you're not an ant fan. I'm not an ant fan, <laughs> <laughs> not at all. We have so many, and they bite, and they're just mm-hmm. yeah. Yep, I've had to I've had to rip all my clothes off in the field too many times because I stepped on an ant mound and didn't know it, and then I have to say, "Look away!" Oh God. <laughs> um. So, yeah. But anyway, <laughs> a little bit of retribution with these little guys in stilts is all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. You know, for I a biology was... paper, mm-hmm. the data is really clear. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I mean, you can send me the hate mail on that one, but a lot yeah. of the biology papers that, that we see, you know, there's a lot of subtlety and a lot of statistics that goes into being it because you've got these huge sample sizes and uh, all kinds of null hypotheses that you're trying to disprove. Whereas in this paper, it's really just a box and whisker plot and it is boom, 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 two sigma. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's very, very clear that yes. they can even do a decent job at predicting the results mm-hmm. from this. Yep. Less so with the stilts, so I guess some of them are better at maneuvering the stilts or something. <laughs> but yeah. Um, I, I would have to think there's some sort of a equivalent paper, minus the amputation probably, uh, done by the armed forces on soldiers that are trying to you know walk out of an area or something. That's probably true. Haven't we done something about this? I feel like there's something so. out there with like that and like with skis and okay, I'm gonna find this. I know this exists. Okay. <laughs> oh no, it was the um, it was the fighting with the the English fighting when they were laden with mud. Remember that one? How they wore down faster in the marching. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I knew, I knew it was there. I knew we'd done this before. <laughs> All these fun papers start to run together after a while. <laughs> after a few hundred. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but it has provided years, literally years of, you know, cocktail party talk. <laughs> hey, I read this paper. Okay, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is another good one. I already told like four people about it. Hey, watch this video. <laughs> so, you know, Steve, do you read scientific literature like the the journal literature just do you go browsing for it sometimes and sometimes you'll see something and you, and you hear about it and you go find it and sometimes yeah just flip open and just look around see see what's being said 
it's hard to find, you know, there's such a flood now uh, of the literature. It's hard to pick things out that are interesting to you. And so much goes by, uh, it seems like, whereas a lot of these fun papers that we get from even the ones in the 90s, I think, you know, it, was, it was harder to, to slip something like that in than it would be now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, social media has changed so much of what we think of each other and how we do research. And, you know, when you mentioned that, you know, back in the 90s, you had to you had to do good work and go to conferences to be known and to have a reputation. Now, if you tweet smartly, you're, you're way ahead of the game. And so you don't necessarily have to have the same quality of publication to get a, a nice online presence. And so I've wondered about that. I've wondered how our research is changing because of the social media and how we, how we were able to kind of manipulate the system. We did a fun paper about that. Did you? <laughs> well, there was one, there was one that was about like the titles and how like they've gotten funnier or whatever and how it's more widely accepted. And I thought that was really great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, like you said, being, being smart with Twitter, uh, presenting your, you know, spinning your research in a way that it looks relevant to more people or maybe not looks relevant, but is the relevance is shown better mm-hmm. than you may have done uh, before. Because I'll admit, you know, reading some of the, one of the papers I wrote in grad school, if you just take the title and go with it, uh, I spent the better part of a year studying the frictional characteristics of baking flour. <laughs> which seems totally absurd, right? Uh, and if I had been smart about it and tried to make a, a tweetable title, a uh, paper would probably have a little bit more impact <laughs> than it mm-hmm. did. That's exactly, exactly it. We'll come up with it. <laughs> right. And also, Steve, you really need to follow the, um, the oh, what was it? Not anagrams. What am I thinking of? The one that was the computer program where it made, um, you know. Acronyms? Yes, the acronym generator. It's really there is good. a Python acronym generator. Is every there? Put in your project's name. Yeah, every government employee should, should run this. It's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> Way back when, there, someone had it sort of working a, a forecast discussion generator and basically just tied together all the good meteorological buzzwords. And, and maybe ah, you gave ah. it a thing like thunderstorms and once it had the topic it would just begin to string words together of the smartest sounding stuff that made no sense whatsoever that's fantastic yeah and then you couldn't tell (laughs) the difference between that and then sometimes you just couldn't tell (laughs) (laughs) that seems like it's begging to be made a twitter bot now sure does oh yes it is (laughs) (laughs) well if you have created your own weather generating twitter bot or have replicated the odometer experiment with yourself, your children, or any other group of people, uh, we would love to hear those results. Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters um, for helping us get great interviews like we just had with Steve. So you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And even though our weather radios think twice before waking us up to warn us of severe incoming weather. Until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.
You gotta stop with these jokes. <laughs> no, they're terrible, and I'm one. not gonna tell them to you before we uh, before we get there. <laughs> that one was actually really good. Usually they're dumb. That one is funny. 